right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Money Barrel. This week, Kayla got to speak with Jill Lane of Jill Lane Quarter Horses. Jill Lane Quarter Horses is known throughout the nation for their high-quality breeding program and the prospects that they produce year after year. Jill does it all herself, from collecting the stallions to breeding the mares, raising and training and competing on her horses. We love the honest approach and desire to improve the industry with each foal she raises. Her focus is the fast sprinting type quarter horses, and we like her style. This week's episode is brought to you by Great West Trailer and Trucks. Great West Trailers and Trucks is a nation-leading horse trailer dealership and service center. Carrying a wide selection of new and used inventory from all manufacturers, they've got something for you. Check out how they can help you at www.greatwesttrailers.com. Or if you're living in or driving through Colorado, stop by their Fort Morgan's location. Great West Trailer is your one-stop shop for all your trailer repairs. Mention the Money Barrel now for 10% off your service. Book by calling 970-867-3544 today. All right, Kayla, take it away. Jill, you're up next. This is The Money Barrel. It is in the middle of breeding season, barrel races are going full swing, and we wanted to talk to somebody that deals a little bit in every aspect of the industry. So today we have Jill Lane of Jill Lane Quarter Horses on with us, and we're really excited just to be able to tell the story of your program. So thank you for being on. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I know you're busy and in the middle of everything. So kind of tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day life is right now. It's very much a routine. Um, If it's Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, it is I get up in the morning. I have at least two girls who are helping me. They will do chores, and usually I get some phone calls from veterinarians who are confirming uh, that they need shipments from different studies that I stand, and I'll have the labels already, and, and then I'll go out there about 9 o'clock, and we will start collecting fits, process semen, and then they'll start pulling in mares for me, and if I have any members that are ready to breed on site, I do that. Um, also, introduce the member transfers here, so I'm constantly checking uh, recipient members and donor members and and how to date those. So you do all of your own breeding work, collecting the stallions, breeding the mares. You do it all. Yes, I do. How did you get involved in doing that part of the industry versus, you know, sending them off to a vet? Well, it started out that I was sending them off to a veterinarian. Um, you know, I used to work full-time as a pharmaceutical sales rep, and there was no way I had time to do all this reproductive work. You know, I was working full-time, and I would haul the mares to and from the vet either before or after work or during the weekends. And when I purchased Red, uh, which is a story in itself, then I decided that I needed to have more mares, and that just took over my life. Um, Seemed like all I was doing was riding back and forth to the veterinarian, and I was accruing some huge veterinarian bills and wasting all my time driving, and I just decided that Something had to change. I actually had a veterinarian who was helping me, and he told me that I needed to learn how to do some of this myself, so I wasn't, I mean, myself ragged, and so he helped me quite a bit, and I don't know, I guess I just took an interest in it. It's very intriguing to me, and I really, you know, enjoy studying and learning more about it, Um, and so I just kept doing more and more, and I really do enjoy it. Let's go back just a little bit. I want to get more into how this became your full-time business, but um, let's let's go back and tell us just a little bit about your background. How did you get into horses and barrel racing, and then you know what led you into buying Red? Tell us that story. Well, first of all, I grew up in northeastern, north central Nebraska. Um, I was a farm girl, and my father, my mom 
my dad were in horses. My mom, my mom did it more as, as for fun when she grew up, like they had little pintos and they would do some trick riding and just ride around. But no, she had a real love for horses. Um, my father grew up in more of a rodeo background. Um, a lot of his relatives were professional rodeo athletes. And so he wanted us to always be involved with horses and at least, you know, become horsemen. Um, I wouldn't say that he really wanted us to choose a career in horses, but he did want us to be horsemen. So he made sure that we always had horses around and that we learned how to ride. And it started out that we would go to horse shows and gym cannons, and then, then we did high school rodeo. Um, and then... I graduated from high school and I had a an offer for a scholarship to go to South Dakota to college, a uh, rodeo scholarship. And that was when I realized dad wasn't all for us making a career out of horses because he he made it sound like it was a choice, but you really knew it wasn't because the choice was this. Um, okay, Jill, you can go to college in South Dakota, but you're going to have to figure out how to buy your own pickup, your own trailer, and pay for everything. Or we will help pay for your college if you forget about the horses for four years and concentrate on getting your college degree because we want you to have an education. And so basically I quit the horses and went to college and didn't get back into the horses until I was working full time and living in Montana. Oh, wow. How many years was that? Oh, uh, let's see. So I'm going to age myself. Um, I graduated from high school in 86, and I don't think, I think I got my first horse again in 94. Um, at that same time, I was married to a rancher south of Great Falls. I got a little cold and didn't think I would ever get into barrel racing again, but um, I don't know. It was just something that I knew, and you know, the, the thing about barrel racing, if anyone can do it, you don't need, I think everybody would benefit from having a professional trainer help them, but really, you can set up a little barrel patch anywhere and ride your horse around the barrels, whereas if you were going to be a working cow horse trainer, you know, you have to have capital, you have to have the right kind of ground and it's more work and more money to get into those other sports. And I think that's why barrel racing didn't really suffer so much when we went through a recession. Yeah. And why really because anybody can do it without a huge startup cost. Agreed. Yep, we talk about that a lot on here. I mean it's it's accessible to everybody. Yeah. So when you got back into it, I mean, that one, that's impressive because I know a lot of people get out and it's, you look at the cost and you're like, oh, I don't want to get back in it. Um, but once you did, what kind of escalated you into, you know, the breeding business side of things? I never really planned. I never really planned that. Um, started out, I just, to become a better horseman and really when I got back into the horses I thought maybe I would get more into the rating or the walking cow horse but for some reason I've always been attracted to the, the sprinting quarter horse and I just seem to be going back to that more it just was more exciting for me and I was more passionate about that so it started out, I just wanted to train a couple of horses every year and sell them and rodeo a little bit and just do that. But when I was working for Merck, you know, I started out in the animal health division at Merck and I sold Equilan and Ivermet for cattle. And that's how I moved from Nebraska to Montana because they offered me a job that I had to move to North Central Montana.
And so I had a meeting in California, a regional meeting. And so I had a really good friend, and she was more into the working hours, but she, she also worked for Merck. And she asked me if I wanted to fly in a weekend early, and we could go look at some different stallions, cutting horse stallions and some reading horse stallions. And so she set it all up, and I just went with her. And that was a and we got to see Doc's Hickory and... Gosh, I can't even re remember all the different um, horses that we looked at. But then the next year, we had another meeting in California, and she asked if I wanted to do that again. And I said, yes, but this time I wanted to look at racehorse beds. And she said, well, I don't know anything about those, um, so you're going to have to call these farms and set all that up, but I'll go with you. And... You know, I had been getting the HUHA racing journals and the Bell Horse News and all that. So I, I started, this was before the day where you could just get on your phone and Google everything. So I, I had to get on MapQuest and look where all these different farms were located and, and set it all up. And so we flew into San Diego, and the first place we went to was Bethel Stallion Farm. And I got to see First Down Dash and the Signature and... Taking all the cash. I can't remember all the stone that they stood there, but I mean, that was really a show place. And we just kept working our way north. And one of the places that we had on the schedule was on Shawnabelle Ranch. And anybody that knows anything about quarter horse racing knows what a legend Blaine was. And so it was pouring rain. It was like in February. And we pulled into the Blaine Schwanabelt Ranch, and mind you, I'm just like in my mid-20s, don't know anybody, I've been out of the horse business for years, and I really have <clears throat> Blaine put on a pedestal because of everything that he's accomplished, and I had, you know, done my homework, homework and had studied up on all of it. So I walk into this place, there's the people, they're sitting around in the office, and they're visiting, and there's this older gentleman, and he's wearing a white shirt and jeans and suspenders. And I walked up there, and I, I'm, you know, kind of nervous, and I introduced myself and said I would, I was there to look at stallions. And this guy stands up, and he sticks out his hand, and he goes, "Well, I'm Blaine Shawnabel. It's nice to meet you." And I just, my jaw dropped. <laughs> every other place that we had been to, it was always some farm manager that would take us around and you could tell that they were going to take you on the tour but they couldn't even tell you how most of the mares were bred or what colts were at their side and it was a pretty standardized tour they knew that you wanted to see the studs so they were just kind of in a hurry to pull the studs out and show them to you and then you could just move on to the next one but Blaine spent all afternoon with my friend her name was Sean Pitchler with my friend and I, and he went up and down the stall rows, and he could tell you how every single mare was bred, and how every colt in her side, what stallion it was by, and he could tell you what she was going to get bred back to. And since it was pouring rain, and he, he wasn't doing a whole lot, so he stopped us at one point, and he goes, well, what are you guys doing for lunch? Do you want to go to lunch? And so, of course, we jumped at that opportunity. So we're sitting there having lunch, and I, I didn't realize all the horses that he had trained. And so, you know, I was just hungry for knowledge and wanting to know how all these different pedigrees were. And at one point, I was like, well, do you know, who, you know, do you know what First Down Dash was like? And he's just kind of quiet, and he smiles. I think he was actually kind of amused by us and our naivety. And he goes, well, yeah, I trained him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he would just tell us about each horse. And it was just, I learned a lot from that guy. It ended up where um, I ended up buying two colts from him on that trip. And then every year after that, I would buy a colt from him. And that same year that I met him and was on that trip, you know, pulls these studs out of their pens. And he goes, you know, I just got this thoroughbred in off the track, and I'm going to stand him um, to hold horse mares, right? He goes, I love this horse. I want you to see him. And so he pulls out this really nice-looking chestnut 
stud, and he looked like a quarter horse. I mean, he was that type, and that was red. And I had no idea that in a few years I was going to own that stud. That's crazy. That that just I can just envision it. Like, what a cool opportunity that day was. Yeah. It um, you know, it wasn't the fanciest place that we were at, but the fact that um, he was there and was willing to spend the time with people that probably weren't going to really help his bottom line or help improve his horses because he was in the racing, not barrel racing. But the fact that he was willing to spend the time with us that he would spend with anybody else was just, you know, it, it spoke volumes. <laughs> That's so cool. And I mean, that kind of goes along with some, some in an, sometimes in our industry, you know, the people that are willing to sit and talk, even though, you know, it might be somebody that doesn't have a big name or anything like those conversations always leave an impact. Yeah. And, you know, that he probably didn't realize it at the time, what an impact he was making on you. And, you know, it just kind of trickles down. Definitely. Yeah. So how did Red end up in your barn? Well, you know, um, at that point in time when I saw him, Glenn actually gave me a contract to raise a red, but I, I only have like two or three mares, and I didn't really have, I mean, I haven't booked something else, and never did anything. Um, it was a, like two or three years later, when I went back to, to visit him, you know, and we would always go through all those prospects. And usually what I would do is buy something from him that didn't quite cut it on the track there at Los Alamitos. Like, it may have run AAA, but it wasn't a major stakes winner. And, and so he was ready to, to let it go and find a different career path. And so once I pulled out this Billy, um, she was coming three. She ran AAA on the racetrack. Really a cute little bay filly. She was probably about 15 hands. I mean, she, she looked like a little rope horse. And uh, I asked him about her, and he, he told me she was by a red, and then she was at an own daughter first down dash, and then she was, I think, Rick's policy on the bottom side of that. And he wouldn't say much about her, but she was pretty. So I ended up buying her and brought her home, and she was. Holy God, was she hot-blooded. Like, I couldn't even. It took three of us to saddle her. That Mark Beauty lived in Montana yet. And he and another guy and myself, we were all riding together. And so I decided I was going to ride this mare. And so we went to put a saddle on her. I mean, she was just in a ladder tied to the trailer. And it took three of us to get a saddle on her. And there's no way I would ever crawl on something like that at my age now. But, you know, I was like 30th at that point in time, so I get on her, she couldn't even walk, she was just lathered, jigging across the arena, and I tried to pattern her, and all I could do is walk and trot, because if you tried to lope, she'd just go out of her mind, and um, her, her name was Cut No Slack, and I ran out of security in Kirsten, and if we wouldn't have tipped the barrel in the first go, we'd have set the arena record in that indoor arena. Um, and she ended up being, I crossed her in Sirocco, and her first cult was Rock, Paper, Scissors. So really? Sirocco's, so far, is leading money-earning cult. And so that kind of put me on the map, I guess, as a breeder. But I think your original question was, like, how did I ever stand instead? Um, so anyway, that was the first cult I had. I read, and I really liked them. I mean, she was hot, but the rest of them weren't that hot. Um, they were so talented. And then Alexia Willis, or Alexia Murley, and I were in California, and we went to one of Blaine's earring cells, and we went to dinner with Blaine and his family and crew after that cell. And Alexia asked Blaine what he was doing with Red. And Blaine had had a lot of health issues a couple years prior to that. So 
I think Red kind of, he ended up going to Louisiana, and I believe Chad Burt owned part of him at one point in time, but he wasn't covering very many mares. And Blaine um, told Alex, you know, that he was standing in Louisiana and he wasn't really doing a whole lot. And so Alex asked him if he would be interested in selling him. And I never would have dreamt of even asking that. And to Blaine said, yeah, he would be. And <laughs> that was in August. And by uh, Halloween day, Red was standing in my barn. And I'm like looking at it, I'm going, now what do I do? I <laughs> That's how I ended up in the selling business. It was all like just a freak any of the best. Things escalated quickly for you. So what was it like bringing, you know, a thoroughbred stud into the industry? And I know our breeding industry has really changed the last five, ten years. Um, but what was it, you know, what did you learn in, you know, the good, bad, and ugly of owning a stallion? You know, I was so naive that I Because that is one point that I wanted to ask because I have always admired that about your program is that you, I mean, you do it all. You don't just stand a stud and hope to sell fees. I mean, you own mares, you breed the mares, you have the babies, you put them in the sales. Like you are the one that's really trying to get your stallions get out there. Um, so when you bought Red, you didn't really have any mares. So how did you start building up your, your broodmare band? And um, what did you kind of focus on? Cause like you said, your goal was to better the industry and better the breed. Um, so how did you kind of build up all those mares? I just started thinking in my mind, what would cost the best with red? And I also knew that I better be crossing mares that were daughters of some of the, you know, leading barrel sires in the barrel industry because I had to do that to get people interested in even buying a cult by him. You know, they had to recognize something on the pedigree. Um, here I am, I am new to the industry, and I have an off, off color, not, not a flavor of the month stallion that I'm standing, so I have two strikes against me, so I needed to have well-known mares, or at least well-bred mares, um, that were recognized in the barrel horse industry to kind of promote the colts. And I tried to pick ones that I thought would cross well with them. So I wasn't, you know, trying to pick something that was really fine bone that was all, you know, ready horse bred, and because I knew that it better be something that people thought would turn more because everyone thinks that when you stand a thoroughbred, they automatically think that it's going to be a 17-hand high, all-run, no-turn type horse. You know, that, mm -hmm. that's what it pictures in their mind. So I, I um, 
I bought old daughter's a shiny bug. I, I bought some, I kind of bought a, a variety. I bought like a daughter of missing cats that I thought would cross well with them. Um, I think I crossed a couple dust of Bane daughters. You know, I just, I did a variety and then kind of, when anybody stands a stallion, you may think you know what crosses well with them, but unless you're, you start raising at least a half dozen, two dozen books by that stud um, of different, you really don't know what's crossing well with them. You know, you got to raise quite a few to know what the perfect mix. So I started from the ground up. And how many how many mares do you have in your program now? This year, I only have, I think I'm going to have 13 foals all together, but I sold a couple mares, and I, I had a few mares that reserved dark babies over the winter time. I think I have around 20 foals every year. Okay. I mean, that's that's no small program. That's, that's a lot of work still. Yeah. So, I mean... And those that, you know, have known your program for a long time, and um, it was Christina Richmond's mare, right? Her name was Extra Red. Yeah. Right? She was the one that made, she made the NFR, and, like, did that kind of get you hooked on staying in, you know, this breeding game because you saw it go to, you know, the highest level? Well, I, you know, I mean... Putno Slack was amazingly talented, and I could feel that. And I felt like one of the major strikes against Putno Slack was I was her trainer and jockey because I am by no means as accomplished as so many others out there. Um, and I feel like if she had been in, in different hands, she probably would have earned a lot more. But I know what I felt. And thank God for Christina Richmond coming along at that point in time with extra red. Um, and winning because that's what every step needs to get on the map is they need winners, they need horses that are out there being proven. And that mayor came along at the right time to get people more interested. That's for sure. For sure. And it's, I mean, it was really cool to see because you could just tell, I mean, kind of about that mare too. You know, she was so fast. And, you know, that's kind of when I, first learned of your program I don't even remember what year that was um but it's just cool to see that and you know kind of kind of now hear the start of the story and then you know you see what it led to yeah so you have read but a lot of people nowadays um are newer to the industry probably really know your program because of JL Sirocco so we have to talk about him because Correct me if I'm wrong, you bred and raised him as well, and he has some extra thoroughbred blood in his cross as well, right? Um, yeah, there is. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I'm of the opinion that any, any horse that is a racing corner horse is basically a sprinting thoroughbred, because if you look at their pedigree, Was 
band of angels, and band of angels was, I believe, I believe it was my bar out of an own daughter of sugar bars. And she was, band of angels was a mare that put Blaine on the map too. I mean, there were several others, but she was one of his first fillies that he did really well with, and she was owned by Ivan Ashman. And so I really wanted to see Band of Azure, and I got to see him, and then I asked Blaine if he had any quotes by him, and he thought about it for a little bit, and he goes, actually, I do have this two-year-old that was on the track, and she got a little bit sore, so she's here. We'll pull her out. So he went to, he took me back to this one barn, and they pull out this two-year-old filly, and I just... I didn't know how I was going to buy her, but I knew right then and there that I was going to buy her. I didn't care how I was going to get it done. I was going to do it. And that was Solera. And Solera is the dam of Sirocco. Okay. And, um, and Solera, her mother goes back to, she was having an own daughter for Sandash. And then her mother went back to Secretariat on the bottom side. So we saw some heavy red influence on the bottom side of her. And I ran Solera her Victorian year, and I can't remember what all I won with her, but then she had bone spurs and a knee, so I ended up reading her, and I read her to Dash to Fame, and I got to Philly the first time, and then I brought her to take it on the cash, and then I brought her back to Dash to Fame, and got this big, good-looking, subtle cult, and I wasn't planning on ever having a stud. That was before I ever owned red or anything. But I figured I could at least keep him a stud for a year or two. And anyway, I ended up keeping him a stallion as Sirocco. Yeah, once because you had red at the time. So by the time you had to decide to cut him, you're probably like, oh, I'm, I'm seasoned to this now. We can just have two stallions. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it goes, right? You just, oh, I have one, then I can get two, then I can get three. So kind of walk us through Sirocco's career and like, you know, through today. Cause like I said, I know that the breeding has obviously changed a little bit. And then, you know, kind of what, what are your thoughts on today's breeding industry? Mm. <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> I, you know, I think in a lot of ways social media is good. Um, because you can advertise for free and connect with a lot more people. Sometimes I feel like it's caused us to get a little bit too caught up in pedigrees and look at the quality of the horse itself. You're just following the, the bloodlines and the pedigrees and all that. So I don't think we need to look at horses that may not be Read perfectly on paper for barrel racing, but they still have the potential. I mean, you still have to find out crosses. I mean, you look at the cutting horse industry and look what I feel like they kind of bred themselves into a corner. I mean, mm -hmm. they're so small and some are so fine boned, and they're all talking about how they need an outcross, but no one's willing to take the risk to do that. And I just hope we don't get to be the same way. Somebody has to be willing to take the risk. And bring in new blood to make it better to keep it good. Yeah, so what, I mean, what would you recommend um, to an incoming, you know, younger breeder or somebody that doesn't have a lot of money? I think it was you, and you made a post recently on Facebook, and it was about um, the mayor that, or not the mayor, the gelding that Sam Flannery has won everything on this year. And you were talking about the fact that the mayor was athletic, good, but had nothing on her papers. And nowadays, a lot of people would not even look at her twice, but look at what she's produced. Like, I thought it was really cool that you as a seasoned breeder brought that point up um, to maybe give some up and coming breeders like some hope that they can do it, too. Absolutely. I, I, you know, um, that, that mare is owned by Kenley Epperson, and she only lives about, she drew up about three miles from where I live right now. Um, and that was a horse that her parents picked up at a sale, and she 
high school rodeo and on it and it ended up being a superstar, you know, around here and just never went. She never went to any big national competition, so no one ever really knew of it. But it was obviously the mirror's a producer. <laughs> you could say that again. incentives and everything. I mean, I know Sirocco's in all of them, um, you know, giving those that breed to him a fantastic opportunity, but there's a lot of, you know, catch 22 with all the incentives and all the costs and everything um, that it can be overwhelming as, you know, somebody that doesn't have a ton of money or, you know, should I breed to a stud that's up and coming versus all that. Um, but it just goes to show you that it can happen if you believe in what you're doing. Yes. Definitely. Bestowing incentive programs, I mean, I don't know what, I, I guess only time will tell. I, I see the good and the bad of those. Mm -hmm. um, it has yet to pay off for me to put my stud in all those programs, but I also know that if he is going to cover very many mares, he has to be in those programs. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. And I hope it pays off. Um, I think it's great that we can run at that sort of money. But I also can see where there is a newcomer that comes in. That is so overwhelming that I don't know how you, I don't know how those people can get established. It's going to be hard. Yeah, and I don't, I don't really think a lot of people realize um, that, you know, just, off the top of my head, you could easily have $100,000 in the stallion incentives um, payment, stud owners. Stud owners could easily pay fifty dollars to $100,000 to be in all these studs. So, you know, that's that's a lot of stud fees before you're even covering costs. So, if you buy these colts, make sure to enroll them and try to support those programs because it's bonus money to you. And, you know, that's the whole reason that stud owners do it. Mm -hmm. I agree. So with with that being said, um, you know, do you do you breed to different stallions now to kind of get some outcraft blood into your program, or do you just kind of focus on those different mares and keep? Because you also own um, Ready. It's Jail Ready yes. to Charm, right? Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Um, so you, I mean, you have three studs. Well, you're not re not red anymore. Um, but, you know, do you breed to outside studs to, you know, create your own mare band or now kind of what are you doing to continue to improve your program? I
responsibility to prove my studs. And, you know, why is somebody going to want to breach my stallion if I'm not writing Colts by my stallion? And I want to be writing Colts by my stallion. You know, the, the nice thing about being a breeder and raising the Colts is a lot of the mares that are in my broodmare band are ones that I rode, so I know the mares pretty well. And I obviously know my stallions pretty well. So I pretty much know what those colts are going to be like. So all that guesswork is gone. And that's kind of nice because you know what you can expect. Um, yeah, it's like you have a little built-in cheat sheet. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's fun. Like, you know, as Harris, I love writing her. And I'm looking forward to writing colts out of her, you know. Mm-hmm. I enjoy writing her. So... I have all these really nice, like, I have at least a half do- dozen daughters of red, and I'm crossing them on Sirocco. And then I have some daughters of Sirocco and some daughters of Solera. And I've got another daughter of by Dash to Fame, and I'm crossing those on Reddy, who is by Red. So that's basically what I'm doing now. Like I've got this little closed group of broodmares and I just keep crossing them to either stallion. That's kind of nice. Cause then, you know, you know, like you said, you know, the top, you know, the bottom, but you're representing your program on both sides. And I mean, that's really yeah. cool. It is fun. Yeah. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up um, because I mean, it's one really hard to be your own breeder and your own stud owner, and the vet, basically, but you are also a jockey, and you've jockeyed some good horses to big wins. Um, So how do you kind of balance that? I know there's really not a balance certain times a year, Um, but, you know, what what do you personally like in a horse, and how do you decide what you're going to keep for yourself versus what you're going to put in a sale or, you know, sell to get your program out there? You know, basically, I kept about everything that I, I raised. Like, I would try to run two or three every year. And now, I'm at the point where I'm hardly keeping anything. And usually, to be honest, what I do end up keeping is something that may have gotten hurt or was a late bloomer and didn't take the best photos at photo time. And so didn't sell as easily, and I'm like, well, I don't have any problem writing that, so I'll just keep it right at myself. And, or I'll keep colts out of first-time mothers who weren't proven, so I know they won't bring as much, and so I keep those back and try to prove them myself and enjoy writing them. Um, usually the ones that I sell are the ones that, have the best photos or have a more proven mother and so they're more marketable and and i'll sell those um especially for like the if i put something in a yearling set or like i almost feel like those are sacrificial lambs because by the time i sit them somewhere to get sell fit for three or four months and consign them to a sale and pay the consignment fee and everything else and the catalog fee i'd have been money ahead selling them private treaty but I also feel like you need to get something all self-fit and pretty and going around in front of an audience that you may not have had had you just posted it on Facebook. You know, you find new customers that way and you meet new people at those cells and they get to see what you're raising and so hopefully it improves your market. I mean, I think that's really valuable advice, um, especially for, you know, junior stallion owners um because that is another thing about your program i mean i have remembered seeing sirocco ads in the barrel horse news since you know 10 years ago like um you've always done a really really good job advertising them and getting them out there and I mean, it, it works. I I know I've yet to buy from your program. Not that I don't want to. <laughs> it's because I'm broke. <laughs> but I've always wanted to. Um, but I mean, your program has just always been 
above and beyond as far as like the advertising goes. And I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize how much time, effort, and money stallion owners have to put into that as well. Otherwise, nobody's going to look at them. Yes, that's true. I think maybe my background just as um, sales representative, you know, and marketing helped with that. And if you weren't going to put a really professional, great photo of your horse out there, then you better not even put a photo out there because that first impression stays with the people forever. And it's hard to get that impression out of their mind. So you better you better make it be a really good photo and uh, present yourself very professionally so that it that's what stays with people. Agreed. Very, very good advice. Just hire the professional photo. Just professional hire. photographer is like the best money you can spend. Mm-hmm. Agreed. I mean, because I, I see it, you know, with the stallion program I run, um, you know, sometimes I just get some pictures in and I'm like, no, you do have a really nice stud, but we've got to get a better picture. <laughs> we, yeah. can't, we can't put this on the website. Like, we, we've got to get a better picture because they deserve that. I mean, they deserve yeah. that. Well, I won't keep too much more of your time. I know it's busy. I'm glad we finally got a chance to sit down and, and tell your story because like I've said a couple times, I just so admire your program. Um, what is some, you know, last advice that you would, you know, tell somebody looking for a prospect or, you know, breeding and, you know, want to raise horses to better the industry and besides don't give up because it's really hard. Um, what, what do you have anything that you would tell somebody that's just getting into it? Oh gosh, you know, You've got to buy something that really appeals to you eye-wise, like, you know, you always, you know, I, I love a pretty horse, and I, I realize there are some big winners out there that aren't that pretty, but gosh, it's nice to ride a pretty horse. It's nice to go out there and just look at pretty horses. <laughs> so, you know, you want something that has some eye appeal, and, and I think you can't, you got to be willing to try a lot of different things to find out what really fits you. Um, and maybe, maybe you want to buy something that's perfectly bred as far as on paper, but maybe that's not what you need right now. If you're starting out, maybe you need something else that maybe bred a little bit differently that's going to fit you and help you learn more. And I mean, I think it's something that you have to just go through a lot of different try a lot of different pedigrees and, and stuff to find out what really fits you. I mean, I don't, I don't think thoroughbred crosses or hotter blooded horses are for everyone. Um, I mean, that's why there are so many different pedigrees and, and types of horses out there. So it's just a matter of what, what fits you, but I don't think anyone gets rich in this industry. So you better do something that you, you know, you're doing it for the passion and what you love. So you better really love what you are buying and riding. And that means it's going to be a really pretty horse that's talented. Do that. If it's something that you, that's only pedigree, then do that. I guess it's different for everyone. I, I really sound like I was all across the board on that answer. No, I mean, I, I like it because it's true. I mean, I think, it's hard not to get caught up and, you know, the best of the best. And if you don't have, you know, a super mare, I mean, I'm really snobby about that stuff myself and I've had to kind of pull it back a little bit. Um, you know, but if, if you enjoy what you're on and focus on, you know, a good horse, not necessarily just a good set of papers, like you can find these really well-bred stallions and, you know, that have some outcross that, you know, you breed to something you love and then, then you enjoy it. And that's more important than anything. Well, somebody has to be willing to try different things because you never know where the next great neck or cross or great horse is going to come from. And I think let's, let's go back a few years to, there was this little horse, that was supposed to be a racehorse, but he couldn't run a lick, and his name was Doc Bar. And 
wouldn't you know, they crossed him on some, I believe it was some Poco Bueno daughters, and that ended up being a magic cross. And he was he was a reject from the racetrack. And look what he did. He yeah. made this huge impact into the cutting horse industry. Um, if he wouldn't have been a reject from the track and there wouldn't have been those quick Poco Bueno daughters sitting there to, to cross on him, what would have happened? So somebody had to take that chance. And I, I just feel like we it's, it's, somebody always has to take that chance and, and not get so caught up in having a name brand animal there. You know, don't mm -hmm. overlook it. I think that's valuable. I like it. I like it. I like it. And it's, it's encouraging. It's encouraging for the people that can't spend, you know, $50,000 on a two-year-old. Um, there's plenty of good stuff out there. Plus, yeah. by the way, I've heard a lot of good things about the Ready Colts recently. I'm really excited to see those. So I've heard a lot of people say that they really like them. So. Okay, I love to hear that. Yeah. I, will tell. I, I, I can't wait to write one. I know that. They're, it was so cool. I just wish I could have I wish his career could have lasted a little bit longer. You know, I got hurt, and so I couldn't keep going with him. But, I mean. He, he proved he had it when, when he was yeah. running, though. All I had to do was sit there, and he did all the rest of the work. He was awesome that way. Like, made me look like I could actually ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you did jockey him to those wins, so you, you deserve a little bit of credit. I think it was more like carrying me to the <laughs> <laughs> Whatever works. Whatever works. Well, thank you so much, Jill. I appreciate it. And we uh, will be watching for the next generation of Jill Lane Quarter Horse winners. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. As always, thanks for tuning in. Don't miss the opportunity at 10% off services with Great West Truck and Trailers. Be sure to reach out to them today and tell them that the Money Barrel sent you. Thank you to Jill for spending some time with us. Be sure to look out for the Money Barrel as we hit the road in the upcoming months. Run fast, be safe, and we'll see you soon.